make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast here today with my special guest, the amazing Kelly Krause. Kelly is an archaeologist turned screenwriter producer via burlesque, specializing in atmospheric genre grounded in history and the supernatural. Her scripts have placed highly in page, screencraft, roadmap writers, we screenplay, and table read my screenplay. Kelly is the co-founder of Nick's Horror Collective, a co-producer for micro short film festival, 13 Minutes of Horror, which streams on Shudder, and a co-founder of the Stowe Story Labs Nick's Horror Collective Fellowship, which benefits a woman horror screenwriter aged 40 and above. She is also a practicing witch and isn't afraid to use her powers for good. Now into her fourth decade, Kelly's journey has taught her to never wait for permission to create and that women are never too old to reinvent themselves. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here, Kaya. This is great. I'm so thrilled that you're here. And I, I love, I just love everything about your bio so much. <laughs> you're fascinating. You are a fascinating <laughs> woman. You've gone from... Uh, archaeology. You were in Egypt, right? You were doing Egyptian. Yes, I, I lived in Egypt for the better part of five years. I was based out of Cairo um, and uh, co-directed a media consultancy for a time out of there where we were working with clients like Discovery Channel, History Channel, Nat Geo. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an absolutely life-changing uh, period of my life. I had so many wonderful opportunities. I actually met my husband while I was there. So... <laughs> There's a love story too. Oh, tell us more about that. <laughs> more about that? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can do this quickly. Uh, I, I love our story, firstly. I'm a huge, huge fan of our story. Um, so the first time I actually saw him um, was at a party uh, at a rooftop bar in downtown Cairo known as the Odeon. Um, and um, it, a friend of mine uh, had planned it and hosted it to welcome his friend to Egypt. His friend had just moved to Egypt from the States. And so my flatmate and I at the time decided, you know, we would go and, and we would welcome um, Luke. Uh, that was his name and wish him a happy birthday. It was, a, it was a birthday party for him as well. And, you know, we were there until about two or three in the morning. And then as I was leaving, that's when the first time when I actually saw my husband and we made eye contact and a little voice inside my head just said, 
I'm going to see that guy again. So it's okay. I can go home and go to bed. It's fine. (laughs) And literally four days later, um, you know, our, our little group of friends, um, decide that we're going to go do karaoke. Karaoke is very popular <laughs> as it turns out in Cairo. Oh my God. Who knew? I know. Uh, so we go to uh, Harry's pub, which is a bar in the Marriott in, in Zemelik. And Zemelik is an island in the middle of the Nile in Cairo. <laughs> so, you know, I lived there for a time as well. Um, and I walk into the karaoke bar and the first person I see is this guy <laughs> from the other night. And come to find out that um, he is the roommate to Luke, the bloke who just moved to Cairo and who, you know, the party was thrown for the other night. And I decide now's the time I got to start talking to him. So we start talking and um, we all end up leaving the bar together. We close down the bar. Our group is the last to leave at 2 (laughs) a.m. And half of us go one way, half of us go another way, but not before, you know, we exchange numbers and all that. And about, you know, four hours later, so it's now like 6 a.m. in the morning or so, we all reconvene at a friend's place. Um, and we had our first kiss then, and we found out that we lived literally blocks away from each other. So we, so we shared a taxi ride back. Um, and we have a, we essentially saw each other every day after that, more or less. So on our one month anniversary of meeting, we decided we were going to move to New York together. So we bought our tickets. And then on our three month anniversary, we flew out to New York. That <laughs> is incredible. You've just blown up the, the, our family myth that nothing good happens between midnight and uh, dawn, but that you're, <laughs> that you're pra- we're practicing witches. So we can say that there's. <laughs> There can be good things. There can even be love that happens. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so we're, you're in Cairo and you're working in media, but you're also in uh, the world of archaeology. What There's so many thousands of years in Egypt with all the different uh, eras of the um, Nile and the pharaohs. Which was yours? Oh, my gosh. Um, I love the old kingdom and the new kingdom. Those are my two favorite eras. Wasn't there a big gap between Old Kingdom and New Kingdom? Oh, like, sure. You have you have the first intermediate period following the Old Kingdom. Then you have the Middle Kingdom. And then you have the second intermediate period following the Middle Kingdom. And then you have the New Kingdom. And then the third intermediate period. And then the late period. And then- <laughs> Oh, my God. I'm here for the Egyptology lesson. I, I love it. That's just amazing. <laughs> so, you're, I mean, you did you move to Cairo uh, on your own? Was that, How was this? I know you... Uh, we're schooled in London. So how is this vision coming about for you? Yeah. Um, so I actually did a study abroad um, that, and that was my first year, full year in Cairo. Um, and so I did fly out on my own and um, this was about a year after 9-11. So my mother was absolutely terrified. <laughs> really didn't want me to go. Um, very few people were, were supportive. Actually, there were um, about only um so, yeah, there were literally three people who were supportive in my decision to move out there and do a study abroad at that time. Everybody else genuinely believed that I was going to be killed. Um, and, you know, one of those three was my dad, um, who was always my biggest champion when I was growing up. And then the other one was one of my advisors at university, um, at Boston University. Um, and this is a this is Paul Zemanski, and I don't expect anybody to know who Paul Zemanski is, but he is very, very big in the archaeological world and especially um, in Mesopotamian archaeology. And this is a man who was working in Iraq during the Persian Gulf Wars. 
I should tell you something about him and why he was so gung-ho for me to go to Egypt. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine at university, and that was it. That was it. And so it, it felt a little lonely, to be honest, that um, nobody was particularly excited. But I, I flew out there on my own. How's your Arabic? It was, it was brilliant. Sorry? How's your Arabic? Now, now it's pretty decent. I, I didn't, I, I only knew a few words um, you know, that I made, made the effort to learn before I flew out, but otherwise I picked it up there. And um, I, I honestly believe that is the best way to do it um, because y- y- your accent is so much better when you learn it there. And so just um, a couple of examples. Uh, one of my friends um, that I met when I was living there in that first year is Egyptian American. Um, so her father is Egyptian. Her mother, her mother was American. She was born and raised in D.C., but she still grew up speaking the language, but not in Egypt, in the States. And um, there were incidents where she and I would be out and people would have difficulty understanding what she was saying, understanding her accent but not mine because I learned it in Cairo. And um, whenever I traveled outside of Cairo, you know, to say Luxor or, um, you know, to Siba or up to Alexandria and I spoke Arabic, I would get, I would get these looks and people would say, you are from Cairo. Oh, oh. The Kyrian accent. Like, <laughs> so even my accent was specific to Cairo. So that is it. That's exquisite. Okay. So you're there, you're studying archaeology. You decided to stay and cause you're there for years. Um, I flew back and finished my degree and um, then took a year off and flew back. <laughs> then started my master's in London. And then um, in the middle of my master's flew back, um, you know, to, as part of my master's degree, because I was doing on the ground research um, and then uh, came back, finished my degree, and then moved back again <laughs> and was there for another year or two. Um, and that's when I, uh, you know, co-directed that media consultancy, Past Reservers, which is still up and running. It's an amazing company. Um, my friend and former partner, Nigel Hetherington, has just done wonders with it and encourage everybody to check it out, especially if you are writing period pieces. They have a lot of great projects under their belt and who knows, could potentially help in some way with your period piece. Fascinating. Well, I have a period piece about Alexandria based on my novel. Oh, well, there you go. I have to call them. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote about the burning of the great library of Alexandria. I don't know if we've talked about that very much, but uh, that was my my five-year uh, period of history about which I'm a, a resident expert. <laughs> That's excellent. Yep, well, see, I mean, you could probably give me a lesson or two on that. Oh, well, uh, Hellenic the period I mean, is not my not even, you know, it's not even Egyptian because it was the Greek city, right? So it's those five years, uh, 410, 415 CE. I mean, we're thousands of years away from what you were studying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, di- I did study the Ptolemaic, the, oh my God, I can't speak, excuse me, the Ptolemaic period and, and the Roman period. I did I did study both of those. Oh, but they did. Were, they, I, they I'm were fascinated by the... the <laughs> The Ptolemaic era is just, it's so fascinating. We're going to go down this rabbit hole for a second because I'm so passionate about it. You know, here's Ptolemy with this amazing vision after Alexander the Great dies. He's like, okay, well, I've got to take Alexander's corpse back to Alexandria and create a religion. So he creates Serapis, this, you know, combination of the bull god Apis and the god Seth, creates a whole new religion and then a law in the city of Alexandria that, um, 
they're, they're building the library and anyone who's bringing in documents, maps, codexes, which are books of any kind, those are confiscated by the Alexandrian police. And then they're copied and the copies are returned to the original owners and they keep all the originals. So they start amassing, you know, the greatest library uh, of the ancient world over 700 years. Fascinating. Well, and, and, and fun little fact, um, the second largest library in the world today, second only to the Vatican, is also in Egypt. <laughs> is, it, is it the new Alexandrian library? No, no. Uh, it oh, it's is, in Car- is in Cairo? It, 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 no, it's in Sinai, actually. Um, it is, oh, it's in yeah, Sinai. That's, that's at a monastery. Started. It is at a monastery, yeah. So, um, <laughs> One of those monasteries have, in Sinai where the women a, aren't allowed to go, I bet. A fantastic collection of ancient documents in particular, fantastic collection of ancient documents that again is second only to the Vatican. Um, and um, I, I believe w- uh, women are allowed to go, um, really? certainly certainly at least visit the monasteries. Um, I, I certainly have visited several Coptic monasteries in Egypt in, in my time. Um, and that, that's also a fascinating period and fascinating history as well. Um, the, the Coptic era of Egypt. And you know, I think many people tend to assume that uh, if there is a Christian population in the MENA region, that's Middle East, North Africa, then it's going to be in, in Jerusalem or something like that. But no, I thought library- it, I was thinking Timbuktu, actually, because there's yeah. all those stories about the libraries there. L- largest Christian population in North Africa and the Middle East is in Egypt. Um, and it's one of the earliest uh, Christian sects as well, the Coptic sect. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So tell us more about your your discovery of media, because now television and film and everything that you're so passionate about with what you're doing now, how does this come to you? How do you get involved? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> um, there, there was no set path, to be honest. And I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people oh, my gosh, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Um I I knew that I had uh, wanted a change. I was ready for a change. I, I had done about 14 years or so in, in the archaeological sector and um, still enjoyed it to a degree, but it wasn't as rewarding as it had been um, during my earlier years. Uh, but I honestly wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I had gotten very interested in um, learning more about diversity and inclusion. And for a very long time, I thought that was something that I was going to be working in and and you know, potentially at the corporate level. And that ended up not being the case. Ah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But uh, what I had taken up um, in my spare time was burlesque. And I I just absolutely loved it. And I, I think that everybody, I don't care how you identify, I don't care what your background is, everybody should take a burlesque class because it is life-changing in so many ways, not just how you look at your body, how you feel in your body, but just how you express yourself, how you compose yourself, how, how you present yourself. Um, and then just the creativity side of it as well, I, I think is unparalleled. I, I can't I I generally can't think of any other medium where 
you are a performer, the director, the choreographer, the hair and makeup artist, the costumer, et cetera, all in one. Perfect. And you have to learn about all of that. Um, what an know. interesting immersion into, you know, discovering the world of TV and film. I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to direct uh, California's largest touring magic show that's based in the Bay Area. The what? Magic the Magic Bazaar. Yeah. So that I was fantastic. Belly, belly dancing for 20 years and I was in and out of those boxes, right? That was the box jumping illusion girl, which I hated. I couldn't <laughs> wait to get off stage. And I was so happy by the time I was directing. I was like, yes, I belong in the dark, helping those on stage. <laughs> <laughs> stage manager. Yeah. But yeah. Don't discount the stage managers. They do a lot. <laughs> Well, for, for magic, you really have to have somebody in the audience because of the, you don't want to flash. You, know? you don't want to reveal the hmm. illusion, especially with the big illusions, angles or everything. That makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. Um, but yeah, I what, what I ended up doing was writing a short play for one of my burlesque acts. And that's honestly what led me into screenwriting because I, I, I performed that with a friend of mine from the burlesque community. And I was very surprised at how well received it was by my fellow performers and audience members. There were people who were coming up to me after the show or reaching out to me after the show in some capacity asking me, you know, was it from a movie? Was it from a book or a play? You know, they wanted to read it. They wanted to watch it. And I was like, mm, that's all there is. I'm sorry, because I wrote it. And it's <laughs> um, what a and- cool response. Yeah, it was, it, it was not, I don't know. I, I, I just didn't anticipate that all, at, at all. I just, I just wanted to have fun and, and do my little homage to the Grand Guignol and cause that's, that's what the act was. So for those who don't know, the Grand Guignol um, was a theater of naturalistic horror in Paris. It was founded in 1897. And um, genuinely many of the things that we, that we eventually would see in horror cinema would not exist without the Grand Guignol. Um, it, it was a very, very innovative space in a lot of ways, um, as far as, you know, uh, practical effects, lighting, um, even storytelling. It, it was very much focused on social horror, not gothic horror, um, which the most of us tend to think of when, when we think of, you know, the turn of the century, the late, the late 19th century, especially 1897, you know, that that's the same year that Dracula was published and how gothic can you get, um, <laughs> But um, yeah, the Grand Guignol was pulling from newspapers and police reports and coroner's reports and was writing stories around murders and all, all these and rapes and all these terrible things, but with, with heavy, heavy commentary on misogyny and classism and racism. And so it was very much ahead of its time. Um, but uh, yeah, that, it, that, that was my act, was my little homage to that. And um, I, I was encouraged by a, a couple of my friends in the burlesque community to keep writing and thought about it for a little bit and realized I had a lot of fun writing that script. I had a lot of fun writing that script and um, really loved the format of playwriting, but wanted something that could potentially reach a, a wider audience. And so that just, you know, screenwriting seemed the natural thing in that case. And so that's what I took up. So you're the the Diane witch of uh, horror now in space. And I want to hear more about what you're doing now. 
Oh, yeah. Well, um, so a couple of things. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll save my favorite thing for last. Um, but um, uh, Kaya, as you mentioned at the top, I am a co-founder of Nick's Horror Collective. Um, we have our own micro short film festival, 13 Minutes of Horror. Last year, 2021, was our inaugural year. And so we are um, gearing up for year two, our submission window just opened. And so we are um, getting things underway and there's a lot of planning and prep for that. Um, and we're very, very fortunate to work with Shudder um, as our official streaming partner. And so it's a very exciting opportunity for women and non-binary horror filmmakers in particular to actually have their work seen and, and seen on a streaming giant like Shudder. So um, we, we're so proud of that. And then um, as far as a personal project goes, I am in prep on my own short film, my very first film, period, <laughs> which is also a horror film, big surprise, I'm sure. Um, but it's very, very exciting. It's also very scary and nerve wracking. <laughs> you know, there's like it's a lot scary of... behind and in front of the camera. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I just, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, we, we could definitely put pressure on ourselves to quote unquote, get it right um, the first time, even though it is the first time and we should give ourselves grace and patience and, and all of that. And so I, I am just trying to calm down and I um, am in the process of lining up my crew. I have a couple more positions to fill, but most everybody is on board and it's, it's just, it's such an amazing team. Like I am so thrilled about this team that I have been building. Um, so at, at this point, it's all women. I'm not gonna say that the entire team is gonna be all women, but right now we're 86% women, which is um, just like phenomenal. And these women just have amazing, amazing backgrounds, amazing backgrounds. And you know the projects that they've worked on and like some big stuff that um, everybody will be familiar with. And so I'm looking forward to sharing more about them and, and you know their work and their projects as we get closer um, to launching our crowdfunding campaign. But and I've just been so, so touched that these fantastic women want to work on my Rinky dink little short films. So. Oh, that's so cool. Let's not downplay it. I mean, that's huge. To get anything done in this industry is huge. It takes uh, it takes a lot of partners and believing to make things happen. What can you tell us about anything about the story or how the idea came to you? A, a bit, yes. Um, so really all I wanted to do was to get something of mine out into the world. Um you know, I think especially as screenwriters, we can spend our lives just waiting, right? Waiting for the opportunity, waiting for somebody to say yes and, and, and say that, oh, I love this project. Let's produce it. And I'm, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of waiting. <laughs> I'm not getting any younger. And that was really the impetus. And, and you know, so what, what can I feasibly get out? And, and for me, that was a short film. And I literally sat down and made a list of all the resources that were available to me um, that I had ready access to um, before I even started writing a script or thinking about a concept, I made that list. And that list included um, <laughs> my husband, <laughs> um, my, my, my next door neighbor and friend um, who is very, very handy uh, and uh, is actually coming on board as our set decorator. <laughs> um, the basement in the building that we live in. Um, and a couple of other people uh, who are part of the uh, San Francisco film community that um, I have a rapport with. And um, the basement was 
really the kicker. And uh, I, I don't have any uh, images or anything like that to share with anybody. Not that anybody could see it. We're, this is a podcast, but. You know, <laughs> um, uh, picture one vision in the basement. Yes, but it is an especially creepy basement. <laughs> the building okay. that we're in is 110 years old. Um, and it shows in, in the basement. It has a lot of character, a lot of great patina. Um, there's also uh, an elevator uh, in the building that is original to the building. So also 110 years old, still working, equally creepy like the basement. And so I, I decided I was going to write the script around the basement. Um, and I have ready access to it. Um, I, I don't you know, have to pay a rental fee or permit fee or anything like that. Um, you know, the, the biggest um, obstacle is just filming during quote unquote off hours, since this is a communal space that's shared by residents in our building. Um, but yeah, that that is what kind of inspired the concept. Um, and, you know, just really thinking about what is actually down there. Um, and then that sort of kick-started uh, thoughts around um, my brother and my friend um, who lost their partner and spouse, respectively, to cancer. And, um, you know, watching them go through the grieving process, uh, watching them still going through it, to be honest, in a lot of ways, even though it's been um, at least five years now at this point um, where they each lost their loved one. And, you know, the, the, the more specific process of trying to part with the things of their loved one and, you know, not, not the things that I am, you know, everybody undoubtedly holds on to, you know, a, a special memento from a shared experience that you had together, but th things like their makeup, you know, things like um, that, blouse that's 10 years old and has a stain on it. And, you know, uh, just um, I wanted to use that as an exploration of how grief can hold on to us, even when we want to move on, when we desperately want to move on, but it still won't let us go. Absolutely. Um, and so the title of the film is called Storage and centers on a storage room in the basement. Wow, I have chills. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> it's so relatable and it's such a core piece of our of our human experience. You know, I remember after Gary Shandling died and the grief that I went through a couple different layers of because he passed and then it was a couple years before Judd Apatow released his um, uh, his wonderful docu-series on HBO called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And I had known Gary's Zen side from our time together, conversations about his spiritual life, meditation, or his jokes about uh, about all of that. <laughs> he could find humor in yeah. anything because he was who he was. But the like it was almost like sailing a ship through an archipelago of grief. You just don't know when you're going to hit the next you know, sandbar. It's like, I, I would be totally fine in my house for a day and be like, okay, great. I'm going to go to the supermarket. And I'd like walk into the supermarket and burst into tears out of nowhere. And you just, you, you feel haunted um, by, by those feelings. Uh, it's really interesting what you're exploring. I can't wait to see it. Yay. Hopefully oh, so cool. <laughs> tell, tell us about next horror. 
Yeah. Um, so, okay, let me see. I have to, I have to try to make this quick too. <laughs> this is also a bit of a story. I can talk um, to you forever. We're going to spend all day doing this. <laughs> yay, I'm, 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 with that. I'm having a great time. Um, so Nick's horror uh, actually evolved funnily enough out of a hashtag. <laughs> Um, it was a hashtag. That is incredible. That may be the most positive thing to ever evolve out of a hashtag. Yay. Oh, oh that's, that's wonderful to hear. This one, I, I will share that with my teammates. <laughs> um, but it was a hashtag that I started um, in October of 2019. And it was hashtag Hallow Women. Um, and so what I was doing was highlighting a woman in the horror space every day throughout the month of October. Um, which of course, you know, is spooky month, Halloween month. And so hence Halloween. women, um, hopefully it made sense. <laughs> it does, it does. I love it. But, um, uh, one of those women that I highlighted, uh, Melody Cooper, whom I'm sure some of you are familiar with, and she's, um, doing fantastic work in television. And she just, um, you know, got signed to, uh, produce her very first feature for Netflix. So she's, um, well on her way to being a powerhouse in the industry and in the horror space in particular. Oh, incredible. Um, but she reached out to me uh, at the end of the month um, slash beginning of November and, and, you know, just to say how much she appreciated that and um, asked if we could somehow work together to, to bring all these women together that had been highlighted. And, you know, initially um, it, and, and some people weren't interested and that was fine, but, but, you know, a, a good, a good deal were, and initially it was just kind of um, talking about each other's projects, trying to identify like how we could help each other. Like, like, did we know some crew? Could somebody, you know, perhaps do a line budget um, for another person's short film or something like that. Um, and then of course the <laughs> pandemic hit. Ah, you're um, so off there, right? And yeah. And late 2019. Projects went on hold um, and um, Melody, you know, uh, called me one day and, and, and said that, oh, like this is um, so frustrating. Like, I feel like we need to create something though. Um, like, like, what could we do? Like, what, what about a podcast? And, and I said, yeah, I, th I, think, I think that's absolutely feasible because uh, at least it's something that we could produce ourselves. And so we put that forward to the group. Um, and, uh, you know, e everybody contributed ideas uh, for a concept, which was fantastic. And that was really fun, just bouncing ideas off of each other and starting to develop a, a high, high concept. And then, you know, a few people were really gung-ho about it and passionate about it and wanted to come in and, and develop it and write it together. And that eventually became the core team who are now, you know, like, like the, the, the managers, the, the community managers. So that's, um, you know, me, Melody Momoshadi and Lisa Kroger. And I encourage you all to follow them. They are amazing women and, and doing amazing things. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we developed this podcast and somehow it got into the hands of CAA and they wanted to shop it. Uh, so that was very cool. Um, and, you know, Sadly, you know, we're not necessarily anticipating anything exciting to happen with that because there have been a couple other stories that have now emerged in, in TV and new media that have similar concepts and similar themes, um, you know, but either way it was off our plate and we wanted to do the next big thing. And that ended up being our film festival. And, you know, what, what a big thing because it went beyond our, our community of, of immediate creators, right? And, and expand it to just 
the the, the broad wide community of, of, of women and non-binary horror creators and we conceived that in january of 2021 and eight months later in august it was streaming on shutter wow. <laughs> so that was a whirlwind it was an absolute whirlwind uh it was a huge learning experience because we didn't know what we were doing of course we none of us had ever done <laughs> run a film festival. Um, and it was a lot of work, but it was also really exciting and really fun. And we were just so amazed by, um, you know, the people who got on board behind us, not least of which, of course, was Shutter, but all of our partners, all of our judges. Um, we had an Oscar winner on our on our first jury last year, what? which is really exciting. Like the, the second woman only to win the Oscar for Best VFX. Uh, so that's Sarah Bennett. And she's been a huge supporter of ours. And so you might know her work from Ex Machina. That's what she won the Oscar for. Awesome. She also worked on Annihilation. She worked on Possessor. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just so phenomenal. And so that was a big lesson for us, um, was learning. Don't be afraid to ask because you may just be surprised who says yes, uh, to you and to your project. Don't be afraid to ask for things. Um, the other big lesson that we've learned this year in particular, and, and Kaya, sorry, is it okay if we swear on your podcast or not? Oh yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I have my roots in comedy, so anything you <laughs> But another big lesson that we learned um, for th this year going into planning and, and Mo specifically, I want to give credit to Mo for this and, and, and um, her relationship with her, with her lawyer, her rep, um, Tony Long, who's an amazing woman um, as well. Uh, if it's not a fuck yes, it's a hell no. Um, so that is something that we are learning um, and that is helping us really recognize and value and celebrate our worth um, as a collective, as a community, as creators, as women. And that if we are not getting a fuck yes from somebody, then fuck them. We're not bothering. We're moving on to the next person who is going to be as excited about our work and our projects as we are. Yeah, that's, that's huge to be able to next people who aren't your enthusiastic partners and believing is a, I mean, that's a whole skill set in and of itself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and again, it's, I just want to emphasize that none of this has happened overnight. Like these are all lessons that we have learned together over the past two years. And, you know, there are lessons that we are going to continue to learn. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I think, um, as, as women in particular and, and women of quote unquote, certain age, cause we're all in our forties now, you know, trying to unlearn so many of the things that we were taught growing up, um, it has, you know, just been a wild journey and adventure. And I'm so grateful that we can do it together because I, I think, you know, it, it, these are lessons that we're learning far more quickly, um, uh, undertaking them together than if we were going solo. Um, that is the and, beauty of a, of a community, you know, life is process, not product. And somewhere along the way, we got, we have all gotten a little bit stuck and feeling like we well, have to deliver something done. And I think the beautiful thing about film and TV is you have all these team members. Yeah. You got to deliver your best, your best part, but you have all these team members around you who are helping hold that vision, who are reflecting for you where it can be better and figuring it out along the way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely. And and everybody brings their own strengths as, as well, you know, just because, um, you know, say, say I'm, I'm good at web design <laughs> or something doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, I'm great at, um, you know, reaching out to partners or, or whatever, but, you know, M- Melody is, um, you know, and Mo is very good at, at, at marketing and, um, you know, Lisa is very good at, um, you know, just writing in general and preparing a lot of copy and things like that. Um, and so it's kind of identifying the strengths and, and learning where, you know, we, we need to support each other, where we need to help each other to help us grow and, and become better creators and, and hopefully better humans as well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's been really, really good. And we're, we're so excited for the things to come. You know, we, we, um, just started this fellowship with Stowe Story Labs. And uh, that's another thing that we're so proud of ourselves for. Because again, it's like, it's like, okay, what's next? What's the next big thing? And what do we want to do? But what are we passionate about? And, you know, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we're all in our 40s. And most of us have transitioned our careers as well. And, um, you know, women face so many challenges in the industry as a whole, but especially in the genre space, including the horror space, but, you know, um, older women in particular face that challenge because so often in this industry and in a lot of industries, to be frank, you know, our, our expiry day is, is age 30, right. Or <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's horrible. And we have so much more to offer. We have so many experiences, you know, to offer and, and that are valuable and worthy. And so we said, well, we would love to do a fellowship for a woman who's age 40 and above. And we wanted to be smart about it, you know, uh, just because we didn't have the structure in place. And we knew, we knew that putting that structure in place was going to be a lot of time and work amidst all the other things that we were doing, not just through Nix, but our own projects. And so we, we identified partners that we could possibly reach out to. And, and Stowe was always our first choice because they do have that structure in place. And David Rokia was just amazing and was so excited about it. And again, like, like that's that fuck yeah, or that hell no, right? He was an immediate fuck yeah, I love this. Oh. And, you know, um, has gracefully you know, um, let us use the Stowe structure for our fellowship. Um, and, you know, we all will be out um, at, in Stowe, Vermont in June um, as part of the fellowship program. You know, we will be helping with that. We will be meeting with the fellowship um, uh, winner um, and, you know, doing panels and Q and A's and, and mentoring and all that. So it's very, very exciting. And yeah. <laughs> are so excited for you. Well, wow. I've just loved having you as a guest on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Before you go, would you share with the listeners, um, since we're recording this in March, what are some upcoming dates if they'd like to apply to your uh, to everything that you're doing? Because you've got a lot of cool stuff happening. How do they find you? Oh, yes. Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Kelly Lynn Krause. So K-E-L-L-Y-L-Y-N-N-K-R-A-U-S-E. Um, that was long. Wow. Uh, and you can find uh, Nick's Horror Collective at Nick's Horror on Instagram and Twitter. Um, our submission window for 13 Minutes of Horror is open until Wednesday, the 13th of April. So get those films in, ladies and non-binary folks. We would love to see what you got and Shutter will love to see what you got. 
Um, the applications for the fellowship have closed, uh, sadly, but um, we will be back next year. And yeah, so keep an eye out. Holly <laughs> Krause, I can't wait to talk to you more about Egypt and making movies and all the things we love. Yay. Thank you so same. much for being here. Thank you, Kaya. This is wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.